This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. Candace Millard is known for her slice-of-life biographies, nonfiction narratives that focus on a lesser-known moment of a well-known person from history. Millard has written another story of courage and adventure, but instead of looking at a few months in one person's life, she explores a full decade in the mid-1800s when three men set out on various expeditions to discover the source of the Nile. Set against the backdrop of the race to exploit Africa by colonial powers, River of the Gods is the story of one of the great feats of exploration of all time and its complicated legacy. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's my conversation with Candace Millard. Okay, so your book, River of the Gods, is about what was considered at the time the holy grail of exploration. <laughs> Where did the Nile begin? And once again, this is a narrative nonfiction of a lesser known piece of history. So can you talk about how the idea was born? Right. So this actually started 20 years ago when I was working at National Geographic as a writer and editor. And I heard the story that really stayed with me, the story of this epic adventure to solve one of the greatest mysteries in the history of human exploration, the search for the source of the Nile. And it involved these two very, very different men and the story of their friendship and the betrayal of that friendship really, really stuck with me. And I kind of kept the idea in my back pocket all these years. And then when I started thinking about a new idea, I thought of that, but I thought, you know, I don't want to tell a story of just these two Europeans going in and quote unquote discovering a place where millions of people had lived for millions of years. Um, But then I was introduced to Sidi Mubarak Bombay, who was this formerly enslaved man who became very quickly the heart and really the hero of this expedition. And that really interested me. And then I was hooked. I want to talk about these three men. Mm -hmm. So the first two men who were um, the Europeans, it was Richard Burton and John Hanning Speak. Right. I want to talk about these three men a little bit. So let's start with Richard Burton, because Mm -hmm. I always love the way you weave in information that I find (laughs) so interesting. And when you were describing his early years, I had to smile a little at the description of his propensity to fight, especially at his words. (laughs) At one time, I had 32 affairs of honor to settle. So tell us a little bit about Richard Burton. Richard Burton was one of these once in a century characters. He was just extraordinarily brilliant. You know, he wrote dozens of books, he spoke dozens of languages, and he was just incredibly adventurous, incredibly ambitious, but also incredibly strange to his fellow Victorian Britons, right? He was always considered an outsider. He he had been born in, in Britain, his parents were British, but he had been raised on the continent, right? Moving from country to country, picking up cultures and languages along the way. And to Britons, he also didn't look particularly British, right? He had black, black hair and black, black eyes. And he had, interestingly, people were just obsessed with him. Even Bram Stoker, who would go on to write Dracula, was completely mesmerized by him and talked about his gleaming dagger-like teeth. And so we think that is a a very good possibility that he was inspiration for Dracula. So he was just this, you know, 
had a lot of faults um, and I, the book gets into those, but without question, a fascinating character. The other European gentleman, John Hanning Speak. So John Hanning Speak was Burton's opposite in every conceivable way. He was what Britons expected a hero to be, right? He was blonde and blue-eyed. He had been born into the aristocracy. He was a lieutenant in the British Army, and he loved to hunt. That was really his passion. And that's what he went to Africa to do when he met Burton, who kind of took him under his wing. But what happened was... From the outside, Speak seems sort of modest and, you know, not going to give anybody trouble. But inside, he was extremely ambitious. And he very, very quickly became very envious of Burton and very resentful of him. And this resentment and anger festered over a few years. And in the end, it ended up destroying them both. And then the last gentleman... I find him fascinating. I find his stories a little bit heartbreaking, especially when you Mm -hmm. think about, you know, a couple of lengths of cloth. Sidi Mubarak Bombay. Can you talk to me about him? Sidi Mubarak Bombay was kidnapped as just a child. I think he was about 12 years old when his um, village was invaded by slavers. And he was dragged hundreds of miles to the coast, finally taken to Zanzibar, where he, he was sold for cloth. And then he was taken to Western India, where he was enslaved for 20 years. Um, When the man who owned him died, he was given his freedom, and he made his way back to East Africa. And that is where he met Burton and Speak, because they were about to set off on the largest, most epic of their expeditions in 1856. And what's extraordinary to me about Bombay, I mean, he spoke several languages, Um, You know, he was incredibly resourceful. He led the caravan. He nursed the men. He helped find food. He did all of these things. He was a translator. But what's incredible to me is he was also unbelievably generous and kind and had this incredibly soft heart. Even after all he had lost, all he had endured, time and again, person after person talks about what a kind person he was. And that really you know, kept these men together when they were facing so much danger and deprivation and, you know, nearly starving to death and horrible diseases. And people are understandably leaving the expedition, deserting all the time. And he really, again, was the heart and soul of this expedition and would go on to be for many expeditions and would really, I think, do more for the mapping of his continent than any European explorer ever to enter Africa. I want to talk about the, the expeditions, but before that, I want to talk a little bit about language because we were just mm-hmm. discussing it. There was, you know, as you mentioned, a point on the expedition when Speak and Burton were, they were feuding. Speak was right. frustrated because Burton was the only one with whom he shared a language. But when mm-hmm. Bombay joined them, he and Speak could converse um, mm-hmm. in Anglo-Hindi. And, you know, there was a, another time later when Burton wrote that speak was a bit sour because he did not speak Arabic and was lonely. And so I want to talk a little bit about the importance of language to these men. But I also found it Mm -hmm. ironic that even though Burton and speak spoke the same language, Burton couldn't decipher the source of speak's anger toward him. You know, (laughs) initially it was that perceived slight during the raid at their camp. And then later all of the resentments were revealed during a, like a fevered delirium. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. No, that's really a very, very interesting question because as we know, I mean, living in a world where there's so many languages spoken and, um, and it's, it's so enriching and, and Burton had the key to that. So, you know, Burton spoke again, more than 25 different languages plus several different dialects. So pretty much wherever he went, he was able to communicate. So, you know, there are a lot of Arabs in this area. He spoke beautiful Arabic. I mean, he was the first Englishman to enter Mecca <laughs> disguised as a Muslim because of his Arabic. Um, and again, here this is a guy who studies every culture, every religion, and respects none. So that fits in with that as well. But he he could talk to anybody. He he learned Swahili. You know, he, he just effortlessly picked it up for him and speak felt very, very isolated before they met Bombay because again, at this point, he's angry, even though he hasn't really expressed that anger, but he's angry and resentful of Burton. So he doesn't particularly want to talk to Burton, but Burton's the only one who speaks English, right? And so he's lonely, he feels left frustrated because he doesn't really know what's happening. He, in his heart of hearts, wants to be the commander of this expedition, wants to lead the expedition, but he can't even communicate with the people around him. And then he meets Bombay. So Speak had been in India with the army and learned some Anglo-Hindi, as you said. And obviously um, Bombay spoke Hindustani so he could speak to somebody else. And Bombay was such a wonderful person too, right? And, and so cheerful and happy to help in any way. And Speak immediately came to rely on him tremendously. Very quickly after they met him, didn't want to go anywhere without Bombay. But then there's that idea of that what's unspoken, as you said. So, you know, all these languages come into play, but what really is this undercurrent is what remains unspoken. So again and again, Speak takes offense to things that Burton has done or has said. He doesn't tell Burton that he's taken offense. He just does. And he adds it to his catalog, right, of resentments and injustices. And it's burning and burning and burning until one night when they're almost back and he is very near death. He's delirious with fever and it all comes rushing out like a volcano. And Burton is just shocked. He said, I have no idea. If this illness hadn't happened, I would have had no idea how he truly felt about me. Your first three books, River of Doubt, Destiny of the Republic, and Hero of the Empire, they all have kind of a tight focus mm -hmm. as far as timeline is related. Mm -hmm. But this book, um, River of the Gods, is, is broader in scope because we're not just talking about one expedition, are we? No, and you're right. That was one of the things. There were several things. This is the most difficult book I've ever written. And that was one of the reasons um, because, as you say, my other books, they have one central character instead of three, and they take place over a matter of months. And so people have named it Slice of Life Biography, which actually is very fitting, right? So it's a moment in time that I think is very illuminating, at least to me, about this time and these people kind of on a larger campus, but a tight and intimate look at this event. And with this story, it took place, yeah, over 10 years. It's, it's the heart of the story is 1854 to 1864. And there's one central expedition, but there are also, there are probably, I don't know, seven <laughs> expeditions within that little expeditions. And so the tricky thing is, you, you can't just not talk about those expeditions because things happen during them that you need to understand later on. 
at the same time, you can't keep dragging people, you know, thousands of miles into the heart of Africa over years, you know, with all these, the same diseases, the same, you can't, people will not stay with you, understandably. So um, that was a challenge just, and again, you know, I, I use a lot, I spend a lot of time working on the outline and that was a lot, just trying to figure out how am I going to convey this without losing everyone who's trying to read this book? I want to talk to you a little bit more about craft, you know, whether it's a, a fish that swims up a urine stream or a beetle that <laughs> crawls into an ear, you certainly know how to right. make me squirm. So I know you travel to get to know the places that you write about. And yes. I'm wondering if you can tell me about your travels to Kenya, Zanzibar, Tanzania, and Uganda, and if you had any squirm-worthy experiences there. <laughs> Right. Well, so this was what I've been, you know, looking forward to, you know, when, when I choose a subject, I have to be honest, one of the things I think about is like, where can I travel to do the research? And I had um, been in East Africa years ago when I was with National Geographic in Ethiopia, and I had absolutely loved it and was really excited, especially to see Zanzibar, you know, and um, so I had been planning it for a long time. And um, it just was difficult to plan with like my children and their schedule and then my parents coming to help take care of them. So we finally landed after years of planning, landed on February of 2020. So I left here knowing something scary is going on in China. It's moving over to Europe, but still there wasn't a lot to fear in the United States yet. And um, so I left, I went to Kenya um, and then pretty quickly went to Zanzibar, which was everything, I don't know if you've ever been to Zanzibar, but it's everything and more that you could hope for it to be. It's every conceivable color, every smell, every sound. It's just exquisite and fascinating. And then over to the mainland Tanzania, all the way west to um, Lake Tanganyika, which is what Burton had hoped would be the source of the Nile. And it's one of the largest and deepest um, lakes in the world. If you look at it on a map, it looks like this scar. It's, it's long and narrow, but huge. And um, so when I was there, one of the things I did is I went to um, Gombe, which is Jane Goodall's research center. She wasn't there, sadly, but I did do a chimp track. And then the next day, I got back on the boat and I was trying to cross to another part of the um, coast of it and there had been a huge storm and so the water was extremely, extremely rough and we're just in an open wooden boat, right? And you feel like I am on the ocean because it's so enormous and it was so rough and we're tipping like all the way sideways all the way side. I mean, not just a little bit, like completely sideways, completely flipped up and down. And I was terrified. And my husband was with me. And I just keep looking at the coast. And I said to him, look, if we flip over, which we absolutely could, if we capsize, I don't think we're going to make it to the shore. And he said, oh, don't worry about that. The crocodiles will eat us before we get there. <laughs> I was like, you're right. You are right. There are a lot of crocodiles in this lake, but thank God we made it. But then we spent the night there and then we had to get back on the next morning and it was not quite as rough, but almost, I was like, you know, <laughs> I really don't want to do this, but anyway, <laughs> we got back. Um, and then we went, um, uh, back east and north to the southern part of um, the Nyanza, which is the source of the Nile, now known as, known as Lake Victoria. And then we went to the northern part, which is where the Nile rushes out. And it was really incredible experience. I'm curious about 
how you select a topic in your research process, because I read that you've had other book ideas like about Marie Curie and Mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin, but you couldn't find enough material to use for your narrative nonfiction style. Yeah. So Marie Curie was a real heartbreak for me. I I worked for a year trying to make it work. A, I really wanted to write about a woman and B, I really wanted to write about Marie Curie. She has an incredible personal story that I really wanted to tell. Um, The problem there was that all the action took place in her mind. So obviously, you know, the the story would have to be built around her discovery of radium, um, but she was in her lab. So I could, you know, what, what what I tried to do with my books is, you know, you try to keep people going, right? Try to make them turn those pages and you need action. You need physical action to make that happen. And, you know, I couldn't just keep saying, well, she's still in her laboratory. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it looks like. She's wearing, she had two dresses, a black one and a dark blue one that she would wear, like if she's winning the Nobel prize or she was in her lab. She's still wearing that dress and she's still in the lab. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, but I believe me, I gave it a real try and um, you know, maybe who knows in the future, I might be able to make it work. But when I'm choosing an idea before I commit to something, absolutely. I have to know that I have a ton of primary source material, not like a lot, but like just mountains where you think you will never, ever get through it all. And that's the only way you have like dialogue. You know, I'll have people say, well, you know, how do you have dialogue in nonfiction? Well, because people will write in their diary, you know, he said this, and then I said this to him, right? Or in a letter, they'll tell somebody, I mean, it's just like today, if you're emailing your friend, and you know, you're angry about something, or you would just remember it. So I have that dialogue. And I have all those details that really make you feel like you're there, I hope, make you feel like you're there. Because as a reader, I read a lot, I want a really immersive experience. So that's what I try to do with my books as well. And so do you have a subject in mind for your next venture? I do. I can't, I can't talk about it. I will say it's a woman, um, which I've been trying to do for a long time. But yeah, I have been able to do enough research that I know that there is a ton of research. I know it's a fascinating story with fascinating the central character, but also the tangential characters. And I'm super excited about it. Um, But I haven't had a chance to actually write the proposal and get it to my editor. So I'm hoping I'll be able to do that soon. So I saw on your website, you know, the little video that shows your three screens set up at your desk. And I don't often get to see the working setup of authors. But when I do, I have to ask about him. Ken (laughs) Follett also has three screens. And I asked him about his method. So I'm curious about what you have on each of the screens, how you you work. (laughs) So that was, yeah, that was a gift of my husband's. And I like, now I'm so spoiled. I I actually (laughs) have it at home as well, because I feel I, if I just have one screen, I'm like, you know, because, um, so usually it just depends on what point in the process I am. But if I'm writing, I'll have, you know, the, just my word document in front of me. And on the left, I'll have notes up that I just keep clicking through, looking for my notes, how I've, I've organized everything. I spend years, I always say to my kids, I always say, thank you, past Candace, for doing all that <laughs> organizing <laughs> so I can find things quickly. And you too can do that with your homework. Um, and then on the right side, um, if I want to look things up, you know, because it's, it's just amazing how, you know, 
just about there are so many websites for all of these archives and everything and I still love going to the physical archives I love and there's sort of no replacing that but I also love the fact that once I've gone and I come back as so often happens and I realize oh there's something else I need from that archive I, sometimes it's already digitized or at least I can reach out I can so I also have my email open I can say hey remember me could you please send me this you know hey whatever <laughs> but usually they can just scan it and email it to you you know so um, it's really nice to be able to instead of having to just click back and forth to be able to just glance over and see what you need yeah so as as I mentioned I always like when you include interesting little nuggets and um <laughs> I I didn't know or else I had forgotten that Burton had published two translated works, the Kama Sutra and the Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. Did you discover anything in your research that surprised you? I did. I mean, again and again and again. And City Mubarak Bombay obviously was at the heart of that. But little things that I love, too, that I just, you know, stick in mostly for myself. But um, so uh, in between these many expeditions, the, the both men fight, um, Burton and Speed go into the Crimean War to fight for a little bit. And I was fascinated to find out. So the um, one of the earls who was one of the commanders of one of the um divisions in the crimean war was the earl of cardigan and he used to wear these wool vests that buttoned down the front and they became very popular because he was popular they started selling them as the cardigan <laughs> so you know and the same with um the commander-in-chief of the forces of the British forces in the Crimean War was the Baron of Raglan. And he had lost one of his arms 40 years earlier in the Napoleonic Wars. And so they made the special shirt for him that had an angular sleeve, right? That went from his collarbone all the way down and they called it the Raglan sleeve, which we now know is like, oh, early baseball and just like fashion. That was named for him, the Raglan sleeve. Well, and I remember your last book, I learned about the trench coat and yes, was it made by Burberry? I don't remember yes, something yes, about that. exactly. I know and because they wore them in the trenches. Yes. Okay. So we've talked about a lot. Is there anything that you want to talk about that I haven't asked? Um, no, I think we've covered it. It's been really fun. Really great interview. Thank you, Beth. Well, thank you so much. The book is The River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile. Candace Millard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was Candace Millard, author of the book, River of the Gods, Genius, Courage, and Betrayal in the Search for the Source of the Nile, which was published by Doubleday. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.